is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. State GOP lawmakers introduced a package of bills yesterday that will allow doctors to prescribe alternative advice and treatment related to COVID-19, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. One of the bills will prevent state regulators from discriminating against doctors who use therapies approved by the Federal Food and Drug Administration for conditions other than what the drugs were originally approved for, such as the antiparasitic horse drug ivermectin. There has been no scientific evidence that drugs such as ivermectin have any effect on COVID-19, and the CDC put out a health alert last year asking people not to take the drug to treat COVID. The medical freedom package was introduced yesterday to the state legislature. A state judge ruled yesterday that an immigration rights group is allowed to join the fight against a group of subpoenas. The Associated Press reports that Bosis de la Frontera, a Wisconsin-based immigration rights organization, can fight the subpoenas issued by 2020 presidential election investigator Michael Gableman. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call originally filed the lawsuit back in October to fight back against subpoenas issued against members of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. The Immigration Rights Group will join a long list of people fighting Gableman's subpoenas, including Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, Governor Tony Evers' administration, and several voting machine companies. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 4,781 new cases of the virus reported yesterday, bringing the seven-day rolling average down to 4,679 cases per day. Here in Dane County, there were 683 cases reported yesterday, continuing a downward trend over the past two weeks. Additionally, there are 142 people in the county that are currently hospitalized from the virus. While the number of cases across Dane County continues to fall, the county remains at a high level of transmission. And one new person died from the virus yesterday in Dane County. The Madison Metro School District saw an uptick in cases last week. That's according to the Capital Times, who reports that the staff and students had 544 COVID cases across the district last week. In total, there have been 3,976 cases of the virus in the district since the start of the school year. And now on to today's top stories. The State Department of Natural Resources heard close to 10 hours of public comments last night over a proposed change to an oil pipeline. Last month, the DNR released an environmental statement about an update to the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline and gave the public their chance to voice their opinion on the project last night. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. Enbridge is a Canadian pipeline company that has oil pipelines across the country. The 645-mile Line 5 pipeline was first built in the 1950s and carries around 540,000 barrels of crude oil every day, from Superior, Wisconsin to Ontario, Canada. Ben Callen is Chief of Integration Services with the Department of Natural Resources. They have an existing Line 5 that goes from Superior, Wisconsin, through the northern part of the state into the upper peninsula of Michigan, 
crosses the Straits of Mackinac into the lower peninsula of Michigan and then um, crosses the state of Michigan and uh, I think terminates in Sarnia, Ontario. So they have a proposal right now to relocate an existing stretch of that Line 5 pipeline around the Bad River Reservation. Following a 2019 lawsuit filed by the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, Enbridge proposed to move Line 5 outside of tribal land. That new proposal is the subject of last night's public impact statement. The new lines, which skirt just a few miles outside of Bad River land, will cross hundreds of bodies of water and would result in the crossing and filling of over 100 acres of wetlands in northern Wisconsin. Mike Wiggins, Jr., chairman of the Bad River Tribe, says that the new plan does not address their issues with safety. According to WPR, he said, quote, The only thing we have ever asked the oil company is to get out of our water. That has been rejected. That has been disrespected and essentially ignored, end quote. In December of last year, the DNR released an over 300-page environmental impact statement, or EIS, about the new proposed pipeline. Last night's public hearing was the first time the public was able to voice their opinions on the statement. Over 200 people attended last night's hearing, which lasted until the early hours of the morning, voicing objections to the pipeline plan that stemmed from pollution, climate change, treaty rights, and risk of trafficking. In attendance were two elected officials from northern Wisconsin speaking in support of the pipeline. Tom Tiffany is a Republican U.S. congressman representing the state's 7th district, and David Steffen is a Republican state representative from Green Bay. Steffen says that the economic gain the pipeline would provide makes the project important. Uh, one of the points that I, I wanted to make clear that you touched on is a tremendous financial benefit to the state of Wisconsin in terms of jobs and tax revenue, additional 6.4 million uh, in taxes alone from this project. Now that alone should not be uh, a reason to approve it, but every major provision that relates to approval of a project of this kind uh, has been met or exceeded by Enbridge and its related entities. But the majority of speakers at last night's hearing voiced their concerns about both the project and the impact statement. John Coleman is environmental section leader with the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, an inter-tribe government agency of Ojibwa Nation that works to protect hunting and fishing rights of tribal members. He says that the statement is overall lackluster. Felt for quite a while now since we first looked at it in November, um, an early draft, that this draft really isn't ready um, for real time. The draft, uh, which was written by a consultant, a consultant that has very close ties with Enbridge, um, really misses the boat in lots of places. It gets, um, has a very confused and uh, weak presentation of the tribes that might be impacted and what those impacts might be. Um, um, but more substantially, there's just sections that are, are weak, um, don't have supporting data, or just don't have um, the analysis that's really needed to evaluate the impacts of the project. Michael Isham Jr. is the head of the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. He says that supporters of the pipeline are not looking forward to what the pipeline will bring to the area. He says that while the jobs are important, the overall environmental impacts that the pipeline creates 
people end up doing more harm than good. Environmental advocates also showed concern over the impact statement. Nancy Larson is the senior water resource specialist with Wisconsin Green Fire, a nonprofit conservation advocacy group. The risk of an oil spill in the high-quality watersheds of the Bad River is a significant threat. The draft EIS does not adequately address spill prevention, climate change-fueled storms, spill response, and impact to high-quality resources. The Lake Superior region's steep, unstable terrain and soils increase flood severity and the impact and difficulty of responding to spills. The EIS should address how intense storms impact construction maintenance operation and spill response and the floods and infra infrastructure damage that we've experienced in the last decade in this region are indicators of what we should expect in the future. And the assumption that spills could not reach the Kakagan Sloughs or would not reach the Kakagan Sloughs in Lake Superior is questionable. The DNR is still accepting written comments on the impact statement until March 18th. After that, the DNR will review each individual comment and revise the statement as needed. Callen says that he will not know how long this process will take until after the comment deadline. The Bad River lawsuit against Enbridge is still ongoing, according to the Progressive Magazine. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Two Democratic lawmakers are introducing a proposal to reinstate Wisconsin's 48-hour waiting period for handgun purchases. The measure, which had been a part of state law for 40 years, was repealed by Republicans in 2015. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. In 2015, GOP lawmakers, then in control of the state's government, repealed the handgun waiting period, which had been in place since the 1970s, and allowed the state's Department of Justice time to conduct a background check of the purchaser. In a Wednesday press conference, Representative Sheila Stubbs, a Democrat from Madison, said that waiting period also acted as a guard against impulsive actions. Allowing purchases of firearms to be done on a whim opens the door to impulsive decisions to result in terrible consequences. Since the pandemic began, Frederick Hospital in Milwaukee has reported treating a, quote, unprecedented number of patients for gunshot wounds, unquote. The bill is unlikely to pass the legislature as Republican lawmakers have repeatedly introduced legislation to loosen gun control laws. Those proposals have been rejected by Democratic Governor Tony Evers. This is Jonah Chester reporting. It's now 6.18 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Each month, when a new edition of Isthmus newspaper hits the stands, we speak with some of the writers about their articles. We call it Isthmus on Warp. Reporter Andy Barrow spoke with Isthmus's Dylan Brogan shortly before broadcast today. The February edition of Isthmus hits newsstands today. The cover story, A Perfect Storm, examines many current issues facing the Madison Metropolitan School District, from staff shortages to administration woes. It's the latest in education journalism from senior reporter Dylan Brogan, who's in the studio with me now. Dylan, thanks for chatting. No problem. Thanks for having me. First, I'd like to ask you about sourcing. 
You talked to all sorts of people involved in education for this story. Who did you speak to and what were some common themes? Yeah, uh, sourcing for anything having to do with the school district can be rather difficult, but I tried to talk to basically as many teachers that I could. And there's a, it's a difficult situation because, you know, there's some privacy rules that obviously have to be followed when you're dealing with young people generally. But um, just last 10 years or so, maybe last five years, teachers have a hard time wanting to say things publicly because they fear some retribution having to do with their job. So that's always difficult. And I guess I always prefer to have sources that are named. But we, if I can't get that or how I navigate that is then, then you need to talk to a, a whole a bunch of people and make sure that this isn't an individual perspective that is you're blowing out of proportion. So that's what I really try to do. I try to get a sampling of teachers from high schools and middle schools and support staff. And, and yeah, I, I ended up talking to a few dozen people, and um, many of them didn't make it into the article and just wanted to talk but didn't even want to have a quote anonymous. But it was very helpful to hear about what's going on in our schools. And what I was hearing is, you know, there's it's a really difficult time. Right now, there's this immediate crisis of just not even being able to hold classes because there are so many teachers who are out or quarantining. But it also is something that started before the pandemic where teachers, have, at least the ones that I spoke to, and there were a lot of them, that feel uh, like the school board and the administration hasn't been listening to their concerns, particularly when it comes to well-intentioned policies that um, don't go as planned, mostly because uh, teachers don't feel like it's being supported and and it's kind of this vicious cycle. The policy doesn't work because they don't have enough staff. And then if the staff feel like they're blamed, then obviously that leads to some attrition. And every school district, but Madison in particular, is facing a real crisis right now in terms of educators. Several of the educators you interviewed brought up feeling disappointed by the approach that the school board has taken um, in addressing student behavior and discipline. Yeah. Can you give us a little of the history behind this issue and more of what those teachers told you? Yeah. So in 2014, um, then superintendent, she has since left in 2019, it was going to be a real big sea change in how they dealt with behavior in our schools. And I think a lot of teachers and educators were all for this move away from being punitive and punishing kids and taking them out of the classroom, because obviously that isn't good when you're trying to educate kids, bringing them out of the class. But what followed was called the Behavior Education Plan, and teachers have a lot of opinions about uh, what's called the BAP. Uh, and just broadly, I think the criticism is, is there's a lot of little stuff that just isn't supported uh, in terms of being able to stop like just a kid who wants to you like just insists on using their headphones or uh, on their phone and they can't not paying attention. Well, teachers have said that this has gotten so bad that in high schools, at least the kids have essentially won the battle to have free access to their phones at all times. And that uh, how demoralizing it can be in the education field when, you, you know, you're you're in front of a class full of students and none of them are paying attention to you. And then there's some more concerns about some big fights that are happening. Uh, right in that whatever uh, approach the school district is using towards making sure everyone is safe in our schools that the school board and the district administrators really haven't followed through on their plans and seem to be in denial about it that's what I heard from teachers and often that the classroom teacher is blamed and that just makes life harder on the classroom teacher and a lot of them left and now they don't have any and that's a real big problem but I think it's beyond a short-term crisis at this point 
One of the issues that you just brought up is the uh, severe staffing shortages yeah. that local schools have experienced. For example, in the article, you note that from November to January, the school district saw 132 resignations while hiring only 34 new staff members. Can you tell me more about the staffing crisis? Well, it COVID didn't help. And I, if you talk to teachers, it goes back a long ways. You could even, some would say even... Uh, a long time ago in 2011, it feels like a long time ago, but I remember it well, which is Act 10, which was Governor Scott Walker's, uh, some people call it, he dropped the bomb in February of 2011. And it, you know, it busted every public sector union in, in the state, including uh, Madison teachers. And since then, teachers have, the ones that I spoke to, really feel like that was taken advantage of by the district to cut them out of decision-making and basically to lose their voice in the workplace, and it gradually happened over time. So it's 10 years out. You know, I think this is an issue that many school districts are facing, not just Madison, but that in Madison there seems to be a particular sense among educators that nobody's really had their backs for a while now. And so all this attention now when you can't staff a class and COVID and everything has really highlighted these underlying issues that have been there for quite a while. As school board elections are coming up in April, um, the action or inaction by the current school board also features in your article. Mm -hmm. Only one school board member spoke with you. Do you expect the outcome of that election to have an effect on the issues we discussed? It is frustrating when school board members do not uh, speak to the press. And I know they're not the only reporters, and I'm thankful that... um, the school board president, the president of the board, Ali Muldrow, who is running for re-election, did speak to me. But it's also frustrating because district, the superintendent, declined to be interviewed. And so did his press person, who's supposed to be the liaison between the media and the school district. You know, I sent him uh, some pretty basic questions and gave him plenty of time to figure it out and answer. And usually they're pretty quick, but just got nothing. So it is very frustrating just in general to try to report on the school district when you have school board members who don't seem to feel comfortable giving interviews to the the press. I have not experienced that in county government or city government or even state government. And then finally, what about the student perspective? Did you talk to any students for this article and how are these issues affecting them? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I did talk to a few students and, you know, I think it's hard when you are a young person in the school district and they their voices certainly need to be a big part of a functioning school. But what I heard from students is, is mostly just confirming chaotic environments and a chaotic environment doesn't mean like... Um, Kids are bouncing off the walls or there's like a big food fighter necessarily, Mm -hmm. right? I think it's more like it's the little things. And I think of the students that I talk to, you know, very much confirmed what these teachers were telling me that it's just kind of amazing how at the high school level in particular, how you can just check out and there doesn't seem to be many consequences. And, um, and also that the restorative justice process that students are supposed to go through if, you know, they, they have a problematic behavior that there's no follow through in that. So that's left a lot of students feeling unsafe, too. But mostly, you know, you just got to feel for all these young people who have uh, had the last three years, two years of their educational lives just totally upended. And adults don't seem to be doing very well.
uh, mental health-wise with the pandemic. So you can imagine being a young person is particularly difficult. And, and I will say in elementary schools, you know, I think it's a totally different climate than the middle schools and, and the middle schools are totally different than the high schools. And there are a lot of schools in Madison that are, are working great. And I tried to highlight that in the article where one school like um, Wright Middle School that I, I talked to a teacher from was very glowing. And, and it was, she feels supported as an educator because her principal ads are back and uh, it feels like all the staff work together and the outcomes for the students are much, much better. So I know you asked about students, but um, they are there to learn and I think uh, their perspective is valuable, but it's a little bit like, I think it's difficult for a young person to take themselves out of the equation, right? Uh, and give um, a broader perspective about it. But I don't mean to diminish young people generally. Maybe I'm just getting older. All right. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you being here today, Dylan. Thank you. I've been speaking with Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan about his new article explaining issues in Madison Public Schools. You can find this story and much more at isthmus.com or on a local newsstand. The January issue is out today. You're You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. Transparency Talk discusses access to court records and a story on the Mary B. Iceboat with Radio Chipstone. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, our contributor, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenick, founder of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government. This week on Transparency Talk, we get our day in court, as Kamenick and Chester discuss what court records you can access. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project, Tom, how are you doing on this uh, fine, chilly afternoon? Jonah, I wish it would snow. It's been plenty cold lately, but we have not had much snow here in uh, Port Washington, southeastern Wisconsin. You know, now that I work from home in this new job, every every day it snows outside. I'm like, I'm glad I don't have to walk through that to the WORT studios anymore. But then there will just be days at a stretch where I don't leave the house and I slowly start to look like Jack Nicholson from The Shining. Do I really need to shovel that two inches of snow on the driveway? Just- the sun will get that. Let's go ahead and dive right in today. We got a cool episode. As always, all of our episodes are cool. But today we're talking about access to court hearings and records, which is of particular interest. People most commonly want access to, you know, things like the legislative branches, uh, uh, board, council meetings, records from legislators, what have you, or the executive branch. That would be, you know, police records, mayor or department records. But as you note in our prep doc here, access to courts is important too. take me from there. 
Yeah, there's three branches to our government, so let's not forget about the judicial branch. We're talking about courts, both from a an access to court proceedings, like to watch them, and uh, looking at court records. So let's start off with court hearings. So the court is holding a hearing. Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's a motion hearing. Maybe it's an, an initial appearance. Could be a sentencing. All kinds of interesting things going on in courts, and you get to go to them. Now, not because of the open meetings law. So this makes this a little interesting from my point of view. So courts are not subject to the open meetings law. There's there's not a governmental body with a court. Uh, typically, it's just one judge holding holding hearings. But so there's no no right, for example, to access Supreme Court. Supreme Court is a a, a court that has seven different justices on it, but it is not. A governmental body not subject to the open meetings law so that means that when they get together and deliberate and decide hey how are we going to vote on this case you don't get to be in the room with them and watch those discussions it also means that when they're doing administrative work when they're kind of running the whole court system you don't get to watch those necessarily either now i'm going to go on a quick side note because there actually was an experiment wisconsin for about a decade or so was one of the only states in the country that did hold those administrative meetings uh, open to the public. So the seven justices would actually come down from their dais where their high benches are and, and have a table kind of down on the floor of the, of the meeting room. And seven of them would sit around and talk about you know, changes to court rules and changes to judicial processes that go on. And... I forget exactly how long ago, sometime five, six, maybe a little bit less years than that, they decided we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> and they voted to take those administrative hearings back behind closed doors, which they do have the right to do the way the law is written. But I think it's unfortunate. It was nice to be able to see some of that work happening out uh, from behind closed doors for once, but no longer. I think they should bring it back repackage those administrative meetings as podcasts. I think that could be the next serial. That's my pitch. Oh, I will help I the Supreme it. Court of Wisconsin produce that. So that's interesting to me because, you know, it seems like in that case, there's not a lot of voter oversight or, you know, citizen oversight of the judicial branch because, you know, a lot of their records are privileged. I, I don't know. I don't know how to package that into a question, Tom. So tell me if I'm right or wrong. <laughs> Yeah, it's something we, especially on the administrative side, when they're not deciding cases, it would be nice to see more of that. Uh, but you do, in the cases, you get the final result. So they release an opinion. It might be 10 pages long. It might be 100 pages long. But every single opinion the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals releases is available to the public. And that's kind of in records, and we'll get to that in a bit. But so I was talking about how there's no open meetings law access to courts, but we don't really need that because there is a constitutional right to access court hearings because uh, almost all court hearings must be held in open session, in open court. You know, So that means that you can go sit down in a courtroom any time of day that they're open you want to and go see what's going on. You can go to those sentencings and initial appearances and motion hearings. You can go see those things. Video and audio live streaming is a thing too. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has actually been doing that for years, um, probably decades again, I think it's been close to 20 years now that they've been doing that. So you can watch and listen to Supreme Court oral arguments on the days of hearings, which is nice. And, you know, not surprisingly, during COVID, a lot of, well, every court started holding their hearings live via live streaming too. And so that has been a method of access that some courts have cut back on, but a lot of them, you can still do that. 
And now there are some exceptions to these, this rule of open court hearings, right? The big one is juvenile proceedings. There's no public right to sit in and watch proceedings of juveniles, even the ones that are you know, accused of committing crimes unless they wind up in adult court, which can happen. But there's so juvenile proceedings are closed. And then in some very rare cases, other proceedings may be sealed from public view too. But generally speaking, anybody can go in and watch any court hearing. In terms of Supreme Court hearings, Supreme Court of Wisconsin hearing, shouts to the folks at Wisconsin I who carry a lot of those live streams. Okay. And I have court records. Court records are also subject to open records law, right? Yes. So unlike the open meetings law, the open records law does cover the courts. So all court records are covered. Mostly that's the filings that go on in court in court that the parties file with the court, their motions and their briefs and affidavits and forms and things like that. But you can also get some internal communications between, say, the clerk of courts and parties or the clerk of courts and judges. Um, but and there's similar exceptions here, too, that some proceedings are sealed. Those juvenile proceedings or, you know, something involving perhaps a trade secret uh, might be sealed from public view. So how do you get these records? There's kind of two different ways you can do it. One is CCAP. Hopefully a lot of people have heard of that. CCAP, the court something automated program anyway, but it's an online repository. And if you just Google CCAP, CCAP, Wisconsin, you should find it. And it shows you the docket entries. It's an online free access system to all the docket entries. So it shows every single thing that's happened in every single case, with the exception of those sealed ones. Now, the actual filings themselves. So you can go and see, oh, there was a motion filed on January 12th. You usually can't see that motion itself if you want to read it. You have to go to the court to get it. Uh, Only parties and their attorneys have access to the e-filing system. Hopefully that changes actually, like for example, in federal court uh, for also for decades now, there's been online access to all the records that you can download. I hope Wisconsin makes it there eventually. But uh, if you wanna view a record from a court file, you need to go to the courthouse. And typically you can just ask and see, you know, I want the court file for case 2020 CV 1982. And they'll bring that whole box or that whole folder up to you and you can look through it. Uh, you can make copies if you want, but if you remember when we talked about flat fees a couple weeks ago, you're going to be charged a dollar twenty-five per page for each of those you want to copy. All right, that's it. That's all we got for uh, today's episode, for which I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure, Jonah. Go out and get those court records, because remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. It's 6.41 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Year, the Clean Lakes Alliance invites folks to spend some expend some energy and raise awareness about our lakes by participating in the Frozen Assets Festival and fundraiser. The events will take place on February 5th at Edgewater and on Lake Mendota. This year there's a special guest, Madison's legendary ice boat, the Mary B. 
Don Stanford, a or Don Sanford, a historian and the author of On Fourth Lake, A Social History of Lake Mendota, is also a sailor and a member of the Ice Boat Foundation here in Madison. Sanford, along with filmmaker and editor Greta Wing Miller and Arik Beller Bayer, produced a film entitled The Mary B, Madison's Legendary Ice Boat. In this archival episode of Radio Chipstone, Sanford and contributor Jennifer Fields pay a visit to the Mary B as she waits for cold weather and hard water. Not, not many things powered by the wind go faster than the wind except ice boats. Ice boaters are hard water sailors, and, and people who sail in the summertime are soft water sailors. So Don, when we're talking about ice boats and we're talking about this tradition, it seems to me something that's steeped in nostalgia. How popular is ice racing, or is it ice yachting? What do we call this thing, and are people still doing it? It's, oh, people still do it. It's ice boating, or ice boat racing. Historically, it was called ice yachting, because everything that was, had a sail in it was called a yacht, even if it was, you know, little. But today, we call it ice boating. And, and people race ice boats, we have a very, very active club here in Madison called the Four Lakes Ice Yacht Club that's been in existence since the 20s, if not before that. And we run races on Lake Kiganza, Lake Monona, Lake Mendota, and our members travel a lot because we don't always have ice boating conditions. And this is one of these goofy sports where if you want to practice what you do, you want to go, go sail in the wintertime, you may have to drive someplace. You know, last winter, three weekends in a row, I drove to Green Lake. One year, I drove to the far west side of Minnesota to sail for two days and turn around and came back. I spent more time in the car than I did on the ice. It just depends how Mother Nature has dealt out the cards of cold weather and, and ice. First of all, she is gorgeous, and I know from the documentary that this is Spruce. It's not just just ordinary spruce. The Mary B is built out of Sitka spruce. And Sitka spruce comes from the Pacific Northwest, where it grows along the coast in these kind of rainforest conditions. It's it's a special wood in that it's, it's light and it's pretty strong. And so it's it's a wood that people use to build airplanes parts of canoes, and ice boats. And so this, there are three or four parts to this thing. It reminds me if you've ever seen in Hawaii those rigger races. Outrigger races. That's what it kind of reminds me of. You know, outriggers, I think they only have one outrigger on one side. Yes. But it's, you know, it's like that. If you want to visualize something, there's a long hull, and then there's a thing it's attached perpendicular to it, and that's kind of the way the runner plank is, except the runner plank crosses it. Here's one of the old runners from the ice boat. It's a piece of steel. Actually, these are aluminum, and this one is, this is six feet long. The runner itself is an inch thick, and the very bottom has been ground to an edge. Ice boat runners are ground to a 90 degree angle on the bottom, on a special machine that makes them very sharp, so they'll cut into the ice. 
you wouldn't want to drop this on your foot. So there's one at each end of the runner plank. So now we've got the, we've got the backbone, and then we've got the runner plank resting against it. We've got a runner on each end. Now, the next thing is it's got to go. You know, something's got to make this thing go. And, and what makes it go is the sail and the mast. It's hollow. It looks like a trellis on the inside. So, and, that, and that serves two purposes. It makes it lighter than building it like solid like a phone pole. And it also lets it bend. You know, I'm, 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 I've got just this end piece here, and you see how it wiggles? Okay. All the way down. All the way down. And what I said over there, that the runner plank has a crown on it. The hull has a crown on it. Ice boats are fast because they've been designed so that when they get hit with a blast of wind, rather than popping up off the ice, Everything compresses. It absorbs that shock of that big blast of wind, and then it releases it. And when it releases it, it helps propel you forward. This ice boat was built in Madison at a time when uh, there was a lot of manufacturing here. And so the hardware that you see here, like this beautiful thing, we call this the hound, that holds the shrouds on the mast, that was, that was built, cast, at the Wisconsin Foundry on East Mifflin Street. Ice boating is one of these sports, and there are probably others, but ice boating is one of these sports that's done in a community. And uh, the parts and pieces were built by a group of people. I mean, there was, there was a head craftsman, uh, Frank Tetzloff, and, and the designer, Carl Bernard, but you can't handle big pieces of wood like this with just two guys and so when it comes time to really put things together, to build it, you need um, a dozen people, maybe more. You don't need them for very long, but you need them because, you know, you have the glue mixed and the glue is going to, you know, cure and you're racing against the clock to get this, get this whole thing, this assembly all put together and clamped up before the glue goes off. One of the things that I also found interesting is that I spent a lot of time in Chicago, spent a lot of time in a lot of places. For me, the South Side will always be Kamitsky. It's not U.S. Cellular Field. This boat has been created and maintained over the years by a variety of businesses in the community, but you don't see stickers and advertisements all over it. It's still the Mary B. It was it's not the Freundlich boat. It's not the people making boats. It, it was it was always owned by individuals. It was never really owned by a business. It was always Mary B was always owned by individuals. Uh, the first owner was O. T. Havy, and he was prudent enough to name the boat after his wife. And back then, uh, in the forties and even beyond that, businesses uh, there was no people, things weren't branded. The, you know, boats were somebody's project. Uh, and, and, and people owned them, individuals owned them, and raced them or campaigned them. It, it wasn't a corporate endeavor. And actually, she's never really been owned in, in, in a... We're really, if, if you want to call the Ice Boat Foundation a corporate endeavor, I suppose you could, but we're a nonprofit organization. And, and the Mary B was built at a time when, when uh, individuals did things just to do them. So Havy, when he built this boat, we believe he spent about $24,000 
1948. What would be the cost now? 250000 Then, after he had it built, he had to have it, you know, he had, and, and we really don't know if the guy, he never sailed it. Havy is like, Havy is like the guy who owns a Formula One car or a horse that runs in the Kentucky Derby. Those owners probably never get on that horse. Maybe they go and pet it, but they're, you know, they're not riders. Havy was the same way. He wasn't a sailor. He had this boat built to win races, and he had an arrangement, and we really don't know whether he'd hired Carl Bernard or Carl just did it, but he, Carl Bernard was the guy who steered it and sailed it for, I don't know, 15 years, and, and Havy is the one who paid the bills, who had it when it needed new sales. He wrote the check and bought the sales. When it needed to be revarnished, he had it revarnished. When it needed, he, if it, when it, it needed a trailer, he paid, wrote the check and, and he paid the bills. And he did that just because he thought it was neat. He, and in, in when, you, when you race sailboats, there's a big cash flow and the cash only goes one way, out. Because you've got the expense of building it, maintaining it, taking it someplace, um, you know, all, everything that's involved in, in taking care of anything at all in sailing or ice boating. That's why we call those sports, we call it pure sport, because you're just doing it. Well, you're also doing it for the Stewart Cup, too, aren't you? Well, you're, but you don't get to, you're, yes, you're doing it for a cup, but you don't get to keep the cup. Where is it now? The, the Silver Cup, the cups that the Mary B won, the Hearst and the Stewart, are uh, in the possession of the uh, Wisconsin Stern Steers Association. They organize those regattas, and the, both those cups now uh, are held by the owner of an ice boat called the Deuce. And the Deuce is bigger than the bee. But They're not as pretty. It. I've never seen it, and I'm just going to call it, it right now. It's not as pretty. <laughs> the Deuce is, is bigger than the Mary B by almost 10 feet. It is immense, and it's owned by a guy, uh, Rick Henning, who lives over in, uh, uh, near Racine, and he's the, he's the last one. Last time they ran those races was maybe the Hurston Stewart, maybe about uh, six, seven years ago. And so he has, he has the trophies now, but when you see the trophy, every boat that has won the trophy has the na its name on it. And, and in sailing, you receive a trophy when you win a race or a regatta, and you get to hang on to it until the regatta is run again, and then you give it to the next person. Like the Stanley Cup. Like the Stanley Cup, right. Your name is scratched on the bottom, and you get to put it in a case and go, oh, that's really neat, and then a year later, they have another Stanley Cup, and it goes someplace else. Don, when was the last time that Mary B. was on the ice in racing? Oh, well, the last time she was on the ice was in 2020. But that was just for fun. We just took her for a sail. Uh, the last time she raced really was in 2003. Uh, and I may not have even, actually, it might have been before that. It's, it's with a big ice boat like this, First off, you need a huge sheet of ice. You know, we're talking the size of Lake Monona with hardly any snow on it, and it's got to be at least six inches thick. And uh, it's, 
because you have to drive a truck out there, you have to take this thing that weighs a ton, and then there are going to be four or five of these things out there. All, so you've got to have all this ice, and we don't always get that ice these, lately. And, and to sail a big Class A stern steerer like this, you need a foot of ice, 12 inches, and you need a big space like the size of Lake Monona. And uh, Mother Nature doesn't always deliver those conditions. And um, you know how it always rains on your day off? Yeah. Yeah, right? Ice boating is, 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 is one of the most fickle sports that you could imagine because you need to, first off, you have to have a lot of ice. You've got to have, for a small boat, six inches of ice. For a big boat like this, a foot. It can't be too cold. If it's, if it's below 10 degrees, we, we typically don't sail because you're, you know, frostbite. And, 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 and you've got to have wind. And you've got to have a clear ice. You can't sail through. You could, you could sail this boat through maybe two inches of snow, but that's about it. So you have to have all these factors. And to get all those factors to land all at the right place at the right time, it's always been a challenge. And now with, with the way our climate is changing, it's become more of a challenge because we just don't, we just don't see that kind of ice. For WORT, I'm Jonifer Field. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Your reporter tonight was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester, Tom Kamenick, and Jonifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, guess what? Stay up to date with WORT Local News Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts. Spotify, if you're still on Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.